0: listening to the Alan Carter show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto.
1: Welcome to the program so very much to talk about over this next hour. We're going to dig into what's happening with QP and happening in the schools and what might happen this coming Monday. In just a second, we're going to take you to the campaign trail of course. Going to talk a little bit about that Amber alert and try and get to behind what's going on there. And, and what's really the story behind the story and some really serious questions about the Amber Alert system and how it is being employed and whether or not it should be changed in terms of how it is employed and how you are notified about that. Plus, we are going to talk Leafs. Our very own Tom Hayes is uh, got a tee-up for the big game tonight. All that coming up on the Alan Carter Radio Program. But, of course, we are also giving stuff away today. Again, a free family pack of tickets to the RV show, which runs October 18th to the 20th at the Toronto Congress Center. Coming up at 1245, a skill testing question. Information contained in the next hour. I'm going to ask you about it. You answer it correctly, you get yourself some tickets. I feel like an FM radio jock, like 1077 The Moose, you know. After you hear journey, after journey, after journey, after journey, after journey, journey time seven, call us. That is coming up in the program, but let's begin with Laura Walton from QP with this announcement this morning.
2: QP members are prepared to go on strike. We are ready. We are ready to do the hard work needed to prevent this action. I hope the province and the CTA are prepared to come to the table and do the same.
1: In a couple of moments, Stephen Lecce, the Minister of Education, will take the podium at Queen's Park for an announcement, reaction to this news. We will carry that for you. We'll get to you, get you to that when it happens. What this means is that they've given the five days now of the QP. This is what they're required to do, five-day strike notice, and therefore the clock is now ticking. We can still have negotiations. We can still avoid this. But I think the question in a lot of parents' minds is, what does this mean for class if we don't get a deal come Monday? And here is a pointed question to QP and Fred Hahn of QP about what CUPE asking of OSSTF, that is the union representing high school teachers, and ECFO, which is the union representing uh, elementary school teachers, what are they asking, these support workers, what are they going to ask of teachers when it comes to picket lines? Do they want them to
3: not cross the picket line? That would be ideal. I think it would be ideal uh, because uh, what we want here is pressure to resolve these issues so that our schools can function and so that people can just get back to doing the jobs they love.
1: So you hear that there from qp They're asking teachers to respect their picket line, not cross the line. But this now from the head of OSSTF, Harvey Bischoff, telling Global News that its members are required by collective agreement to report for work. I ask my members to be respectful and supportive of any QP job action, says Mr. Bischoff, but failure to report for duty would put them in jeopardy of discipline by employer. So in other words, the contract and the collective says teachers still have to go to work. Go ahead, respect the picket line, but that will put you in contravention and there could be some disciplinary action because of that. But in terms of QP, why go this route? You've already got work to rule. Why put the notice out of a strike? Are things so sour?
2: Uh, school boards had already taken the initiatives to have children as young as 10 and 11 doing supervision. Um, they started laying off, canceling programs. We had one board that sent out an incorrect memo uh, stating that we would not provide a, uh, medication to our students. Uh, they literally took the weekend to figure out ways uh, to reduce services that are already at a critical point.
1: So there you have complaints from Laura Walton of QP about all the terrible things that have happened. She was asked to try and name schools, whereas the union claimed that uh, students, older students, have been asked to volunteer to look after lunchrooms. She said too many to mention. Could not provide an actual school. Uh, You know what else happens in schools other than actual school? There's a little something every once in a while called an election, and I don't know if you know this, but if you vote, often you end up going to a school. So what's going to happen to those polling stations? Here again is Fred Hahn of QP and what his message is for Elections Canada.
3: Yeah, and, and they'll have to deal with that, but there's nothing that our members would do that would impede the democratic process to allow people to vote. Except for
1: any kind of mopping. In the battle for the hearts and minds of the province, who's winning? Well, Laura Walton from QP. she says QP is.
2: The public and the students are standing by us. They understand that there may be some short-term losses, but in the end, they are seeing those losses because of what this province and what the school boards have already done. When they are not able to have classes that they need in order to graduate and move on, when we have the government and the school boards reducing our jobs, which are good jobs that our students could be performing in the future, they understand that we're fighting for them.
1: I wonder if you agree with that. That is Laura Walton saying that students and teachers, pardon me, students and parents around this province are solidly behind QP. And now, here from Antonella Artuso of The Sun, twos, as she's affectionately known down at Queen's Park, a tough, pointed question about motive, and then a response from Fred Hahn.
2: The unions are actively campaigning against the conservatives, and then you give a work to rule campaign a very short amount of time to work. Might the public not think you're trying to create chaos in the Ontario school system to benefit other political parties and hurt conservative Andrew Scheer? The
3: only chaos that has been created in this system is as a result of the cuts of the provincial government. And of course we're campaigning against those cuts as our parents, as our communities, as our families. And of course we've got to use every tool that we have as a union to try to protect services for students, to try to protect the work that our members do.
1: Isn't that interesting? Very, very telling. Coming up, the Minister of Education, Stephen Lecce, will take the podium at Queen's Park, and we will take you there as we continue to keep you updated on the labor unrest in the education file. To the Amber Alert, where police in southwestern Ontario say a father suspected of abducting his five children has been spotted in a red Toyota Camry. Niagara Regional Police say Ian McDermott was seen somewhere in the Niagara region, 5 p.m. Tuesday, in an O2 Camry, license plate number CJMB976. And they say that the kids, who are between the ages of 5 and 14, were not with McDermott at the time. Now, an Amber Alert is supposed to be simple and straightforward. And I am going to argue here that the administrators of this this system are currently failing us. I want first, though, to talk about this case because obviously we can't really talk about the failures or successes of this when we're actually talking about kids possibly in danger. We want to keep focused on what is at stake here. Here is why the Amber Alert has expired. Here is Phil Gavin, who is a media relations officer with the Niagara Regional Police. Essentially after five hours, it expires and then it falls to the local police service or the police service of jurisdiction to continue to pass out that information. I think one of the reasons for that is, is you would never want the Amber Alert to become grey noise and uh, where people just, just you know, don't pay attention to it. So. And I think that is where we are at, are we not? we are already well past half a dozen amber alerts this year alone and i will forego the fretting and the pulling of the hair and the gnashing of the teeth about the idiots that call 911 to complain 911 to complain because obviously that's ridiculous but we are we not already beginning to enter into the zone of just noise especially when you look at the case here There is a time delay here. If you know the details of this case, it is believed that these children were taken days and days and days ago. So here is the constable trying to explain what is that all about. The missing person report was filed with us on the 30th from
0: uh, Family and Children's Services. Uh, There's a temporary custody order in place involving Family and Children's
1: Services. So when the missing person report was filed with us, we conducted our investigation with our child abuse unit and some other detectives from around our service. As a result of that investigation, we have fear
0: for the the safety and well-being of the children, and uh, we felt the best course of action was to use the Amber Alert system.
1: I put a lot of trust in investigators and officers who say we had reason to fear but recently we have cases where custody disputes become amber alerts and that is extremely dangerous because as you know if you cry wolf too many times the villagers don't come running after a while and if it turns out and certainly obviously I hope that it is just moments from now that we get an alert that these kids have all been found and they're fine but in custody alerts I think this is concerning. And I think that the people who run the Amber Alert system have some long and hard thinking to do about the protocol, how it is implemented, and how it is being rolled out. Welcome back. We have developing news both on the municipal front and on the provincial front. We are watching the media studio at Queen's Park. Stephen Lecce, the Minister of Education, is expected any moment now to respond to the notification from CUPE educational support workers that they will go on strike as of next Monday without a deal. We'll get you to that when it happens. Also happening in just the last couple of minutes, the City of Toronto declaring a climate emergency. What precisely does that mean? Here is Councillor Gord Perks.
3: Is it right that the federal government talks big and acts small? No. Is it right that the provincial government is hostile to solving this problem? No. But that doesn't excuse us from picking up their burdens until they learn better.
1: We are going to take up the burdens, apparently. More burdens for us. Hooray. Gord, what
3: else you got? That doesn't excuse us from leading by showing that governments can make a commitment. That doesn't excuse us from having a clean hands approach. Yes, we asked Torontonians to pay more because nobody else would, and we knew it was the right thing to do.
1: Hands are clean. Voted for a thing. Said I didn't like this. I don't don't care for this climate change. So that is continuing, we will keep on top of that for you, climate change crisis being declared by the city of Toronto. I want to talk about World War I, and I am a huge dork when it comes to World War I history, and I want to talk a little bit about the Battle of Hill 70, because it is a significant battle that Canadians fought in, but yet is almost forgotten entirely, until at least today. Here's a bit of background. The Battle of Hill Seventy began on August 15, 1917. And at this point, World War I is in its third year. The Western Front had devolved into that static conflict that you know so well, the images of that war, a line of trenches and fortifications from Switzerland to the Channel. Hill 70 itself lay to the north of the French city of Lens, which had fallen to the Germans in 1914. Around this time, the British Army was planning a major offensive further north into Belgium and wanted to focus German attention and resources elsewhere. In other words, this was an attempt to draw off German strength. The Canadian Corps was coming off the victory of Battle of Vimy Ridge in April of that year, And for the first time, all four divisions of the Canadian Corps had fought together in a single battle. The attack began at dawn on the 15th of August. And within hours, Canadian forces had secured their objectives on Hill 70 and driven the German defenders from their fortified positions overlooking the city. Over the next four days, the German army launched 20 separate counterattacks to try and retake Hill 70. The smoke from fires and artillery barrages meant that at times visibility was almost nil. Soldiers reduced to fighting hand-to-hand in the trenches. None of these counterattacks, however, managed to dislodge the Canadians. And on the morning of August 21st, a Canadian attempt to take the nearby city itself was repulsed, and that effectively ended the Battle of Hill 70. In total, Canadians suffered... Over 9,000 casualties. The Germans suffered north of 20,000. It's perhaps due to the indecisive outcome of the battle that Hill 70 has largely faded from Canada's public memory. But few battles in the Great War were definitive, including, of course, Vimy Ridge. Now there is a new memorial presented today, dedicated today, and... On hand is Global National's Redmond Shannon with more about the Hill 70 Memorial. Hill
4: 70 is located just 10 kilometres to the north of Vimy Ridge in northern France. And the battle here took place just four months after Vimy in 1917. 102 years ago, the Canadian troops took this hill and fought off 21 German counter-attacks to retake the strategic location above the town of Lens in northern France. During that 10-day battle, 1877 Canadians lost their lives and more than 7,000 more were injured. Here, the centrepiece of this new memorial is this white obelisk rising from the central plaza. It is 70 metres above sea level, matching the exact same height as the nearby original location of Hill 70. And also on site there are six special walkways, each one dedicated to one of the Victoria Cross recipients. And if you look to the ground you'll see these maple leaves embossed into the concrete, one for each of the Canadians who gave their lives in 1917. Canadians who come and visit Vimy Ridge will surely Now come here, too, and no longer will the Battle of Hill 70 be Canada's forgotten battle. Redmond Shannon, luzon in northern France.
1: And an incredible bit of visual coming from that this morning, where they actually had two World War I airplanes, including a Sopwith, fly past. Just incredible to think about the level of sacrifice required in that war, and that people and men and women went willingly to do their duty. Hill 70, no longer a forgotten battle for Canada. Where do the four main political parties in this country stand when it comes to big tech? The Toronto Star asked the Liberals, the Conservatives, the NDP, and the Green for their thoughts on the need for legislative reform in this digital age of ours. Everything from privacy to taxing big tech. Tony Wong is a technology reporter at the Toronto Star, and he joins me on the line. Hi, Tony. Hey, Alan. So what did you take away from these platform planks from the main parties? Let's begin with the liberals.
5: Sure. I mean, they all essentially have the same platform planks. The idea is that you have to regulate big tech in some way, especially over issues such as privacy uh, the question is, none of them really know how to get there. They don't know what the end game is. But certainly the Liberals have introduced a digital charter uh, which says uh, they will penalize uh, companies or the big platforms like Facebook or Google or YouTube for putting out misinformation, for example. Um, and they will have much more stringent penalties than they do now. They also actually have um, uh, an inquiry... But that won't happen until after the, 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 uh, a Jan, uh, an inquiry headed, headed by Janet Yale, a former executive of TELUS. But that won't come out till January of 2020, until after the election. And then, and then it's up to the, the next government to figure out what to do. But the, everybody's trying to look at how to, do the, how to regulate uh, the big giants. Nobody knows how to do it.
1: Are the Conservatives, I mean, generally, uh, philosophically, are a little more laissez-faire. Are they hands-off in terms of the tech giants? Um,
5: They have, well, yes. Yes and no. I mean, they they understand that public perception has changed. Um, You know, if Ryerson Leadership Lab, for example, this week said that 60% of Canadians want some kind of regulation uh, with technology, so even though the, the, the Conservatives have typically been more hands-off, they also understand that they've got to get into the game. And I, I, I think, uh, you know, their, their, their grand statement is that they have to ensure that the personal data of Canadians uh, is protected. How they do that, uh, they haven't come up with a solution yet.
1: The Greens have been aggressive in a number of their policy platforms, especially when it comes to taxing big organizations and big companies. Where do they stand on digital privacy?
5: Well... They are right in line with what Europe is doing. Europe actually has been ahead of the curve. The OECD has come up with what they call the General Data Protection Regulation. It's just a fancy term for, for, for uh, this overall umbrella of uh, copyright regulation that will look at uh, and penalize uh, the big platforms for uh, any kind of data breach uh, privacy protections and the greens are very much in line with that they would essentially take that model and adapt it for Canada
1: and we would be remiss if we did not mention Mr. Singh has he differentiated himself in any way from the other three
5: well I mean I, I think in, in many ways um, they're in line with the greens um you know um, the last time we talked to them they mentioned that the the privacy commissioner commissioner of Canada and they brought this up uh, is actually suing Facebook Um, and you know they're saying this is you know really in many ways quite outrageous that you have um, you know Canadians suing the big platforms over privacy issues and you have a parliamentary committee Um, subpoenaing uh, Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO of Facebook, to come up, and he doesn't even show up. So they're they're saying, this is outrageous, Uh, Facebook has been under the spotlight, and we've got to do something about it.
1: Tony Wong is the tech reporter from the Toronto Star, talking about the four main political parties and where they stand on possible legislative reform when it comes to big tech. Tony, thank you so much for being on the program. Thanks again, Alan. Really quickly, let's go to Queen's Park. Can From we go to QuickSpeak? Here's Stephen Lecce, the Minister of Education, speaking live.
6: I told my negotiating team through the mediator to be available to meet at any time to get a deal. And that offer still stands today. We were close, and I believe we can get this deal done soon for the best outcome for our students. I call on QP today to accept the dates, to lock it in, and let's move forward and get back to the table this week to resolve this regrettable situation and unnecessary disruption for our students. That the is deadline Stephen Lecce.
1: We will get back to him. He is responding there to the notice from QP that they will go on strike if they don't have a deal as of Monday. The education minister proposing new dates for more negotiations. will stay on top of that. And more also from the campaign trail and a trip to a Montreal boxing gym. TKO on the Alan Carter Radio Program when we come back. Welcome back to the program for the federal party. Leaders are spending most of this day preparing for a French-only debate this evening in Montreal. I don't know how your French is. I'm hoping that Google Translate will help me through tonight. The debate sponsor, the French-language television network TVA, reaches a large audience of francophones outside of Montreal. and Those are voters that Trudeau must recruit if the Liberals are to increase the number of seats that they hold in Quebec and to try and offset potential losses in other parts of the country, mainly the 905. The Liberals hold 40 seats in Quebec. But the party strength is heavily concentrated in Montreal and in the Montreal suburbs, and it helps to explain that why Trudeau is taking part in two French language debates, but only one in English. After refusing to take part in all others, tonight's debate pits Trudeau against Sheer, against Singh, and the new Bloc Québécois leader Yves-François Blanchet. Green Party leader Elizabeth May and Maxime Bernier were not invited. This morning, Justin Trudeau had a photo op. This is where we just have the cameras and he doesn't take any questions. And surprise, surprise, he was at a Montreal boxing gym for a photo op. This is the same thing that he did before the debate in 2015. And of course, back in 2012, when he knocked out a senator, You know, this is the same thing. So we go back to this one. This is tried and true for Trudeau. Between this and the canoe, if he could maybe box in the canoe, maybe we might have something. I don't know. Uh, Jugmeet Singh was shaking hands with members of the public in Quebec ahead of tonight's debate. And that is when this exchange happened with an older man at a Montreal market.
2: Pleasure to meet you. You know what? What's that? You should cut your... Turban off, and you put a you look like a Canadian.
3: Oh, I think Canadians look like all sorts of people. That's the beauty yeah, of Canada. Yeah, but
2: uh, That's, in, I don't agree. In, sir. in Rome, you do as a Roman, school. hey, but this is Canada, you can do like whatever you like.
1: That is Jugmeet Singh responding to a man who tells him he should remove his turban. That debate going tonight in Montreal. Meanwhile, here in Ontario, thousands of education workers across this province are preparing to go on strike as of Monday. The Canadian Union of Public Employees, which represents 55,000 education workers, says it's given the provincial government the five days' notice that it's required before it can go on strike. Custodians, clerical workers, and early childhood educators began a work-to-rule campaign just this week. And Stephen Lecce, I believe, is still speaking at the Queen's Park Press Gallery in the media studio. Let's go to the Minister of Education now.
6: I've been very clear that uh, my hope uh, and my expectation is that we would never compromise the safety of kids. I think as a broader principle, one of the things I commented on some days ago uh, was when KIPI provided that directive, that list of issues, uh, a list of services, that they will not be, or they're discouraging or directing their staff not to do. The sixth item on that list was the administration of medicine to an as child who's ill. Now I think, as I've said, and I do believe this, I know quite a few QP members, and I think in the heart of hearts they're going to do the right thing. Uh, I'm a bit troubled that that was even on the list to begin with, but. Um, you know look, I think the system overall, the ecosystem around our kids so from administration to the student- to the uh, boards of education to the Ministry of education to the to the workers the eAs as well as of course the teachers, I think we're all going to have to put the kids first uh, and so
1: you are listening to Stephen Lecce, the Minister of Education, speaking in the Queens Park media studio, saying that he is ready and willing to get back to the bargaining table. He says that this is deadline negotiation tactics by the union, who have now indicated they will go on strike as soon as Monday. They have given the required five days notice, this just days after beginning a work-to-rule campaign, and pointedly asked today, why would they do this at this time, after such a short time with work-to-rule? Why would they amp it up? And... Considering that the union is actively campaigning against the federal conservatives, is this a tactic to hurt the conservatives in this election? The answer from Fred Hahn of QP was, we didn't pick when our contracts would expire. We did not choose this. That's coincidental. Stephen Lecce, the minister of education, saying a strike will only hurt kids. He is encouraging the union to come back to the table, and I'll, one more note on this quickly before we go. The response from the OSSTF, that is the union re, uh, that uh, represents high school teachers in this province, was asked, will teachers cross picket lines if we come to that on Monday? And the response was, we want our members to respect CUPE and we respect their job action, but... The collective agreement says if teachers don't show up for work, they could be disciplined. So we're staying on top of that. We are heading towards more labor disruption in the educational system here in Ontario. Oh, coming up, ladies and gentlemen, as promised, we have a big giveaway here on the Alan Carter Radio Program. We don't do this all the time, but every once in a while we like to bribe you with some free stuff. And what we have is a free family pack to the RV show. RVing people. It goes at the Toronto Congress Center from October 18th to 20th. And you have to answer this following skill testing question. What battle is being commemorated in France today? What battle from World War I? We talked about it in the program. If you can call in and you know the answer to that question, the first caller will get themselves a free family pack. Rob, tell them how they call in.
3: You can call 870-6400 or star 640
1: on cell. It's well done, sir. Thank you. Well, thank you. Let's get to sports, shall we? Do you know that? I'm sure you know this already that the Leafs take on the Senators tonight to open the new hockey season. The Leafs are reportedly set to announce the team's new captain prior to the puck drop. Among the favorites for the position Matthews, pants on or pants off, John Tavares, and Morgan Riley. Expectations for playoff success all time high. Uh, For the team, after being bounced from the playoffs in the first round in the last two seasons by the hated Boston Bruins. Puck drops tonight at 7 p.m. Okay, sure, you can snicker at our planning of the parade, but how's about this for Sens fans? You're going to love this. The Senators apparently have to actually subsidize or come up with some kind of partnership to get their fans actually to the stadium because... They have now partnered with Lyft. This has just come out this morning. Hockey fans who have to worry about driving and parking at the Canadian Tire Center now have an incentive to avoid those issues. That's because the hockey club has partnered with Lyft, which is offering fans a 25% off ride fare on select game days. So there. Still with sports, days after California passed legislation allowing college athletes to be paid, other U.S. states are now considering a similar move.
0: Two Minnesota Republican state lawmakers announced this week they plan to push legislation allowing college athletes to sign endorsement deals, sign autographs for money, and to hire agents. It's something that could get the backing of Democratic Governor Tim Walz, who says he's uncomfortable with the current amateur system. In Kentucky, a Democratic state senator says he's drafted a similar bill. However, there is some pushback. University of Wisconsin-Madison Athletic Director Barry Alvarez says he will not schedule any games against California teams if their players are no longer amateurs. Ryan Burrow, ABC News.
1: Meanwhile, the NCAA insists that college athletes are amateurs who should not profit financially from their talents. Meanwhile, major college football and basketball coaches are paid millions of dollars a year, and big athletic departments reap millions from brand sponsorships, TV contracts. The NCAA itself reported slightly more than $1 billion in revenue in the fiscal year that ended August 2018. That's the last... Uh, time frame, which full figures are available. Current NCAA regulations ban athletes from signing endorsement deals or accepting any payment for the use of their images. And this California law, which is scheduled to go into effect in 2023, would let them do so, and it would specifically prohibit the NCAA from punishing them. This is a huge development. You're a big fan of college football. You love March Madness. This is going to have ripple effects. And NCAA, at this point, they don't know what they're going to do. They're thinking, well, maybe we'll just boycott any games with California schools. Not certain how that will work. Are you heading to the airport anytime soon? Because Canada's busiest airport is soon going to use artificial intelligence-powered technology to try and detect weapons. The operator of Toronto's Pearson International Airport says it's agreed to test this new system— It's done by Vancouver-based Liberty Defense Holdings that say the technology that's known as HexWave can detect both metallic and non-metallic weapons, ranging from guns and knives to explosives. It operates by capturing a radar image, then uses artificial intelligence to analyze those images for signs of a weapon concealed in bags or under your clothing. Adam Oldfield is 640 Toronto's tech expert, pardon me, and joins me on the line. Hi, Adam. Hey, how are you, Alan? Very well. What is this, like a scan, a radar scan of you? How does it work?
0: Yeah, it's, it's actually very similar to a technology that came out in about 2016, which they use to see inside cargo containers. And so as we know, when we go through the airport, we check in, they say, take your shoes off and you know, remove your, pro- your laptops, electronic devices. Well, this is an upgrade to that. This basically takes that security to a new level. And uh, the old technology, which was what, two years, three years ago, uh, that looks through cargo uh, holding uh, containers is using X-ray and neutrons. Think of it as uh, uh, goes through an x-ray component, it looks at all the elements, and then it goes through the next stage, which is a neutron generator that creates the 3D image. So this company, uh, Hexwave, is the technology, but Liberty Defense has been uh, proud to announce that they've got this upgraded version of a neutron uh, generator And it. Think of it as a, uh, a light beam shooting on a body. It scans the body itself, looks at variables based on metallic and plastics and so forth. That's what the neutrons do. And they and br- it then sends a signal back, and then the computer will say, this is standard, There were, there's no metallic or warning signs that look uh, like a knife or a gun or a concealed weapon of any sort. But the big thing is airports are trying to make it more efficient. We know that. We get to an airport, you have to be three hours in advance, two hours, and you wait in line taking stuff out. So this is a new advancement to help get through Toronto uh, Airport, it's much quicker.
1: So what are passengers actually going to notice other than having to apparently do the Neutron dance, a classic <laughs> song by the Pointer Sisters?
0: Nothing. Actually, this is where I believe it becomes a little bit of a uh, violation to a degree. And we've talked about privacy. Um, It could be installed in in a direction sign. You could be looking at uh, what the flight uh, schedules are. And in that sign, these light beams are are technically, uh, you won't be looking at them yourself. You'll be walking between two uh, pillars, if you will, or imagine two signs, uh, uh, billboard signs, if you will. And on each side, they're beaming uh, uh, an invisible ray to the naked eye, and as you walk, it will skin. It will, it's, it's like walking through or going through on the uh, 407. It's, it's like an electronic toll. It just takes a quick shot of your body shape, creates a 3D image, bounces the light waves back, and if there is something suspicious, it then notifies, uh, we'll call it, the person in the tower, uh, who will then be able to radio down to security on the floor and say, this is the individual. In fact, not only is this the individual, it keeps a, a record of the information of the individual, what they look like, what they could be wearing, and what they could be possibly concealing, whether it could be a a vest bomb, whether it could be a a knife, a a gun. Otherwise, it it warns the security personnel on the floor the capability of, of being able to know how and what to expect if they confront that person.
1: Adam Oldfield is 640 Toronto's tech expert, joining me on the line to talk about this new technology that is about to go live at Pearson International. Thanks so much for being on the program. My pleasure, yes. What do you think of that segment? Was that segment okay? If I was to ask you to give me a hand gesture to signify whether you thought that was okay or not, what would you do? Would you put your hands together with the thumb and the forefinger closed to make a circle and the other three fingers up in the air? Would you do that? Because to me, that just means A-OK. Sometimes I give the double OK. Well, don't do that. You know why? Because the finger and thumb gesture, also a popular emoji, has now been used as a sincere expression of white supremacy according to the Anti-Defamation League. And using this hand symbol, ladies and gentlemen, is dangerous. It is dangerous to you because people are going to think, Well, that guy's a white supremacist. Or if you happen to be at Universal Orlando and you're an actor and you're dressed up as the movie character Gru and some kids come and want to pose with you and then you do the hand gesture, you're canned. Universal spokesman Tom Schroeder confirming in an email that an unidentified actor no longer works for the company. Schroeder says what the actor did is unacceptable. A photo provided by the six-year-old girl's parents to Florida Today shows the actor, fully disguised as Gru from the Despicable Me movie franchise, standing behind the girl and making the OK gesture on her shoulder. Her parents say the photo was taken at a character breakfast. And again, the OK gesture last week, was added to the Anti-Defamation League's online database of hate symbols. It ain't okay to flash the okay. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying.